joining Crosspoint family. I'm delighted to be able to stand here this morning and proclaim God's word to you uh, over video. And I understand that our video is lagging about three, four seconds behind. So this is how it's going to go. It's going to be the longest sermon ever. I'll say one line. I'll wait three seconds and I'll start saying it again. You can read my lips as I'm saying it. I'm just kidding. <coughs> I want to give a shout out to Darren with uh, Nola Cutting Boards and thank him for the beautiful work and the beautiful craftsmanship that he's done as in putting the pulpit and the Eucharist table, the Lord's Supper table together. We're excited to have them as an addition in our new sanctuary. They're beautiful. Uh, they show the beauty of creation with the different woods that have been used to, uh, to put this together, and they show creativity. And they remind us that our God is the creator, a creative God, and one who has created things for our enjoyment. And this is just one of the examples of how God has created things for our enjoyment. Well, before we turn our, our direction and attention toward the text in Luke chapter 7, uh, we want to, I want to lead us in a time of prayer as we think about uh, our governor and the state of our nation, but also I want us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Uganda. Uh, they also are on lockdown right now, and so we want to lift them up and pray for them. So would you join me in praying? Let's pray together. <coughs> our Father in heaven, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Uganda, the churches that we are familiar with, Lusimbatia and uh, Faith Baptist Church there and Bugari Baptist Church in Bugari. We pray for Pastor Ronald and Pastor George that you would strengthen those brothers and all of those who are part of the ministry there in Uganda uh, in the church. We pray that you would strengthen the churches as they are partners with us in the gospel and we with them to proclaim the hope and the good news of your gospel to the world. We also pray, Father, that you would keep their families safe as even Uganda is battling with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we pray, God, that you would strengthen the church to, uh, to serve you and to be bold in their witness for you during these days. Now, Lord, we also want to pray for Governor Edwards, for President Trump, and the many, many who are making decisions uh, on behalf of our nation, on behalf of our state. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would surround them with wise counselors. We pray, God, that you would, uh, that you would surround them with people who, uh, who listen to your word and listen to your spirit. And, God, that you, would, uh, that you would give them anointed counselors so that they might have wisdom to make decisions and to lead us as a people. Uh, we do pray that you would give wisdom to Governor Edwards as we all expect to hear some form of announcement from his office this week. We lift him up to you, Father, uh, and we pray that you would, uh, that you would, you would give us endurance and strength, whatever he says, to continue walking uh, as you have called us to as faithful servants of yours. And we pray this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I want us to look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verses 36 through 50. And uh, the, the title of the message this morning is Jesus, Friend of Sinners. 
And so as we uh, as we look at the text, verses 36 through 50, I want to invite you to follow along as I read or listen as I read. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, a certain money lender who had two debtors, one or a certain money lender rather had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay the canceled debt, he can't, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. <clears throat> then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even that who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As you consider this passage this morning. I was thinking about what Jesus is saying and how Luke is telling us of Jesus's encounter with this woman and the Pharisee. And one of the questions that came to my mind is, how do you let the people you know, how do you let the people who you love know that you love them? You know, we show and communicate our love to others in different ways. And if we're aware of someone else's needs, if we're self-aware, even in our own hearts and minds of our own needs, our love often takes different shapes when we're meeting the different needs of those whom we love. Whether they be physical touch or affection, whether it be words that speak of encouragement and, and affirm someone, whether it's through buying gifts for others or whether it's through serving them or simply spending time together. I think Gary Chapman wrote a book on these kinds of ways that we love one another called the five love languages. But one thing is for certain, as we consider how we love others, it's not enough to, to tell someone again and again, over and over, I love you, and then never back up the words with actions. And, you know, at some level, we, we, we can really apply this across the board to all relationships, but I'm thinking particularly of those who are closest to us. For example, 
in my marriage, right? Uh, if I continually tell my wife, I love you, but then I don't do anything to serve her, I don't in any way uh, or any of my actions show her that I love her, then my words are simply empty words. But if I truly love her, if I'm truly committed to her, then my actions are going to back up what I'm saying. So love is an action word. And in one sense, that's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. That's what Luke is wanting to point out to us, that as we come to faith in Christ, faith in God is demonstrated through our love for Jesus. Faith in God is demonstrated through our love for Jesus like the woman, we're, we're called to make much of Jesus. Well, in the heels of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue and admonishing the people, particularly the religious leaders, in verse 34, Jesus had already said to them, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now here in verse 36 of chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus had been invited by one of the Pharisees to go to the home of Simon and to dine at his house. And the story is full of meaning and full of gospel hope. At, at one level, we're reminded the gospel is for everyone, not just for the outcast and the despised sinners of the world, but also for the respectable of society, even Pharisees. That's why Jesus goes to Simon's house. But on another level, <clears throat> the story teaches us that God's kingdom sees and values things differently than the kingdom of the world. So Jesus enters the home of Simon, but Simon as the host, though cordial, he, he remains unconvinced about Jesus. Here's the detail that surfaces as the scene kind of unfolds. The details of the story clue us into the contrasting characters, the, the sinful woman and the self-righteous Pharisee. Looking back to last week, we realized that this story is a living story. It's an active illustration that contrasts those who justify God and those who reject God. As Wes pointed out last week, it seems an odd thing to say that we would justify God. In chapter 7, verse 29, it Luke is telling us the one who justifies God is the one who repents and trusts God's purpose for their life. And that's the sense of the passage this morning. We're left asking the question, do we approach God as broken sinners or do we approach him as self-righteous people who aren't as bad as most? Let me caution you before answering that question to consider the unfolding drama and to think deeply over your faith walk with Jesus. And so this morning, what I want us to walk away with is this understanding. My faith in God is demonstrated through my love for Jesus. My faith in God is demonstrated through my love for Jesus. First, let's consider the context of the story. It was customary in that day for the Pharisees or a Pharisee to invite a visiting teacher to dine in his home. And so Jesus accepts the invitation. You know, we do a similar thing when we have visiting teachers or preachers come and speak uh, to the congregation. We might take them out to eat dinner somewhere after, or we, uh, we might invite them into our home to have dinner and share a meal 
around the table. It was also customary in that day, though, to leave the doors open kind of that that would in the house that would go into the courtyard so that anyone who's coming by, curious onlookers, beggars, friends, passers by could enter the courtyard and they could even sit kind of around the the edge and they could listen to the dinner conversation that was going on. We we can't think of the privatized homes that we have in the same manner that we would think of uh, of first century Christianity. So people would often sit down and listen and. And as the meal is underway, get the picture, in walks this sinful woman. She's uninvited and she certainly feels awkward. She feels the awkwardness of her unwelcome presence as she approaches Jesus. It's likely that she intends to anoint his head with the alabaster flask, the jar of perfume that she's brought. But as she approaches, and she can't get the jar open, she, she begins weeping. She begins weeping before she can even open the jar. We learn that her weeping comes from a grateful love. We learn that her tears are are an expression of emotional convergence, of repentance and joy all mixed together. And when she enters the presence of Christ, she is just overwhelmed with the sight of him there and the knowledge of her sin and forgiveness that he has extended to her. Perhaps you've had a similar experience with your Savior. You know exactly what she's feeling as you've come into his presence and you've wept over your sin. Her tears begin to fall on Jesus's feet as she weeps. and She has nothing to wipe the tears away with. And so to make things worse, she kneels down, she lets her hair down, and then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. No No decent, respectable woman would ever let her hair down in public. But but I want you to know that there's nothing immoral about this scene. As she's wiping his feet, she begins kissing his feet. It's a scene of reverence and it's a scene of humility. Cleansing of feet was, was something that was reserved for the lowest of low among household slaves and servants. And so we have this picture of her lowering herself. She's making much of Jesus and she's making little of herself. She did what she came to do. She anointed his feet. Now, meanwhile, there's something else going on while this is happening. Simon himself is is standing aloof. He's standing uh, off. Uh, He's standing back. He's looking and seeing all of this scene unfold. And he continues to formulate this impression of Jesus. This man can't be a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know this woman was a sinner and he wouldn't even allow her to touch him because she would make him unclean. But the ironic twist in the story is that Jesus does, in fact, know all about this woman and he knows about Simon. In fact, he reads Simon like a book and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replies, say it, teacher. And he tells the parable of the lender and the two debtors. And this parable is illuminating. Jesus poses a question, and Simon rightly concludes to the one who has the largest, he rightly concludes the one who has the largest debt will love more. The parable begs the question of us this morning, which debtor am I? Am I the debtor that has the large debt before God, or do I view myself as the one who has 
insignificant debt before God. You see, the gospel of Christ challenges us to see ourselves in one of two extremes before holy God. And we don't like the choices that we have here in this story, do we? On the one hand, we have the sinful prostitute. And on the other hand, we have the self-righteous Pharisee. And we're uncomfortable with these options. But notice there's no middle ground when we come to the Savior. So Jesus, turning to the woman, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't help me to wash my feet off, which was a courtesy that should have been extended to a visiting teacher. Instead, this woman has come in and she has washed my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, you, you didn't even give me a kiss of peace whenever I entered your house, but she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet since I've come in here. You didn't even anoint my head with olive oil. She has brought this expensive perfume. And she has anointed my feet with it. So the implicit answer to the unspoken question, which of you has shown me love? This woman has shown me love, Simon. There couldn't be a greater extreme to contrast the, the unnamed sinful prostitute who was a woman and the named self-righteous religious leader who was a man. Which one was accepted by Jesus? The answer is outrageous. It challenges the cultural norms. It turns the expectation of entitlement of religious elite upon its head. The sinful woman was accepted over the religious leader. You see, the kingdom of God turns the ways of the world upside down. In what kind of kingdom is a sinful woman given preference over a respectable man? The answer is in God's kingdom. In what kind of kingdom is the lowly exalted above the wealthy? The answer is in God's kingdom. In what kind of kingdom is the guilty, desperate, penitent person embraced and the confident, self-sufficient person rejected? And the answer is in God's kingdom. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in the kingdom of God. The sinful woman models, get this, she models how every one of us ought to see our sinfulness before a holy God. She was aware of her unworthiness. She was conscious of her sin and she knew Jesus was the way to forgiveness. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus forgives even those we might deem as the biggest sinners. And yet we have the religious leader the one who was to carry God's message, God's kingdom to the nations. We have this religious leader unwilling to extend forgiveness to a fellow human who bears the image of the Pharisee. What leaps off the page at me this morning is that we're all sinful before God. Regardless of the size of our debt, the inability to pay our debt to God places us all on even ground. We are all the biggest sinners before holy God. Every one of us. From students to senior adults. Every one of us. We have this debt with God that we cannot pay. You may not be as depraved or evil, as wicked as you could be. But God's standard for holiness, it's not based on other people. 
Our standard of holiness is not based on comparison with others. God's standard is based upon his holiness. And because of that, we are equally, equally condemnable before God because he is holy and we are not. But here's the good news. In God's economy, my future isn't measured by my past. It's not measured by my accomplishments. It's not measured by my position. My future is measured by what I do with the person of Jesus. Do I make much of him or do I diminish him? Am I like the sinful, unnamed woman or the self-righteous Pharisee? Listen, we should all shout with resounding praise to God for the glorious hope of such good news. Because it is good news that Jesus died for our sins. Because we all have sin debts. And he truly is the only one who can forgive us. Secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the characters of the story. This is the, the last half, the last point of the message. First, we see Simon the Pharisee. We, we know there are three main characters in the story. Simon the Pharisee, the unnamed woman, and Jesus. And we see Simon the Pharisee here. His sins weren't as obvious as the woman's, but they were certainly present. His self-righteous assessment was based on the sinfulness of others and not his own standing before holy God. You see, if we ever find ourselves thinking like the Pharisee, God, I'm thankful I'm not a sinner like so-and-so or like that person, we need to repent. Notice the Pharisee didn't speak out loud. In verse 39, it says he he said to himself. He thought it. He thought this this woman is a sinner. He failed to realize that when Jesus graced his home, Jesus was encountering him, a wretched sinner as well. And so Simon stood judging this woman. He was guilty of condemning this woman, failing to see her as a person created by God in need of his grace and love. And rather than reach her, he decided to judge her. But this shows the difference between our human perspective and God's great love for humanity. So often we're quick to judge others and fail to see how God is working in the lives of others. Jesus knew and discerned the mind and heart of both Simon and the woman. Friend, let me tell you, Jesus knows and discerns our hearts and our minds as well. This makes me think of Proverbs 20, verse 9, which says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? The answer to that question is seen in the hope of Messiah, the one who comes that makes us right with God. The reality is we all have sinned before God, but how we approach Jesus is telling about our faith. Notice Simon's treatment of Jesus. He's cordial. He's willing to have Jesus sit at his table, but he's unwilling to open himself up to Jesus. He's unwilling to be close. He keeps Jesus at a distance. He doesn't wash his feet, doesn't give him the kiss of peace, doesn't anoint him with oil. He's cordial, but he remains unconvinced of who Jesus is. And he's unwilling to surrender control to Jesus. Perhaps you can identify with Simon the Pharisee being cordial with Jesus, but distant. Unsure if you really need him. Unsure if he's trustworthy. 
Or maybe the word complacent would describe your attitude toward Jesus. But if if we can learn something from the Pharisee this morning, it's this. His debt was just as significant before God as the sinful woman. And his greatest need was forgiveness. And if we learn that about the Pharisee, we can also learn that about ourselves. And our greatest need is forgiveness through Christ. You know, many like the Pharisee don't recognize their brokenness and their sinfulness, their utter helplessness outside of Christ. They trust in position or they trust in wealth or social status or they trust in their name rather than trust in God's generous love. Even when he sits at their table, right? Even when he dines with them. We have all kinds of self-righteous justifications to prove that we're acceptable to God based on our own merit. But Jesus has something different to say when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to being acceptable to God. My prayer for every one of us this morning is that we would look past our privilege, that we would look past social standing, look past finances, look past our self-sufficiency, and that we would see ourselves as God sees us, sinners, equally condemnable before God for our sin against Him. Sinners who need redemption and cleansing through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Not only do we see the Pharisee, we see the unknown sinful woman. If Simon can be described as one who made little of Jesus, the unnamed woman can be described as one who made much of Jesus. She had a reputation as a sinner. It's clear from the story. Most likely, she was a prostitute. Her sins were known by all. When she walked down the street, she could feel the judgmental stares of other women. She could feel the stares of the religious elite. That's why it was so hard for her to come into Simon's house. She sees the way other men look at her. She's a woman who knows her depravity. She knows the double standard of her culture. But more than that, she's a woman who's aware of her own sin. She's aware of her utter unworthiness to be in the presence of grace. But in this story, we encounter a woman who's broken. A woman who needs healing and restoration. And it doesn't matter who we are. The Christian's story is necessarily one of brokenness and of healing and of restoration. Brokenness over our sin, because when we encounter holy God, we can't help but see ourselves before him as utterly incapable of satisfying and living up to his holy demands. We know the battle of the flesh all too well, as Shane spoke about during our time of confession. We seek to satisfy the sinful inclinations of our flesh at the drop of a hat. We battle against the pull of our flesh, which says, satisfy me, satisfy me, satisfy me. I'm what matters. Have it now. Don't wait. We battle these things. But what we see in this woman is what we all need to exhibit in our own lives. Brokenness over our sin before God. We also see the road to healing for this woman. At the end of the story, Jesus tells her her sins are forgiven. I want you to know the road to healing isn't immediate. It's 
gradual. But here's the key. Brokenness is where the journey begins. It's entering the narrow gate, as Pastor West read earlier, as Jesus told the disciples, and it, it requires navigating this rocky terrain of trials and testing. It involves living by the Spirit, as Jesus so incredibly shows us how to do, live by the Spirit. And redemption. Redemption is the glorious price that God has paid to reconcile me and you to himself. It's a, a wonderful, hopeful truth. Christ purchased our sin-sick souls from death and he gave us life. He redeemed us. He redeemed us out of darkness and brought us into his glorious light. And Luke, Luke is here showing us what happens when the, when the gospel, when the hope of the gospel, when God's gospel love impacts our lives. Brokenness, healing, restoration. Do you see it in this woman? Humility, boldness. You see each of these profoundly in the actions of this woman who in the third disciple is greatly encouraging. Her faith overcomes her fears. Nothing will keep her away from her Savior. Shame will no longer rule her life. Fear will no longer cast its horrid shadow over her days. Guilt which bound her with unbreakable chains has been overcome by forgiveness. And her lavish actions towards Christ shows her affection for him. She loves him. She makes much of him. She's realized the unworthiness of her condition and that Jesus himself has died to set her free, to forgive her. To this we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. What an incredible Savior who would take away my sin, my guilt, my shame. And he would suffer death so that I might have life. What an incredible Savior. Perhaps for you this morning, there's guilt which binds you. There's shame ruling your life. There's sin that has bound you. There's fear that casts its shadow over you. I want you to know this morning you can come to Christ. You can come to be healed. Come to receive redemption. Come to receive forgiveness. To be made whole in the midst of your brokenness. In verse 47, Jesus says her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. So he tells her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. That calls forth a response from everyone else that's sitting around the table. Until now, we haven't heard from them. The dialogue has been between Jesus and Simon. The woman has only been able to get out tears as she's come to Jesus and the question that is posed in verse 49 gets at one of the main themes that Luke has been nailing down over and over again and that is who is Jesus what is his identity who is this who even forgives sins they say this is the third character for us to consider this morning Jesus forgiver restorer savior 
The contrast of the two characters couldn't be greater. In the Pharisee, we recognize the error of worldly wisdom which says, I'm good enough. I'm not like those degenerate sinners. I'm different. Jesus, I don't need you like the others do. Woe to us if we approach Jesus with that kind of a mindset and perspective. But in the sinful woman, we recognize the display of wisdom from above that has birthed brokenness over sin. The only way we can truly come to Jesus is humbly. There is only one who holds the power to heal our sin-sick souls, and his name is Jesus. He is the forgiver, the restorer, the savior. His authority to forgive the woman's sin comes from God's authority. And his authority, it is validated and vindicated when he takes her sin and my sin and your sin to the grave. And then he rises victorious over death because he put down the power of sin, which is death, and he triumphed over it. And so hear this this morning. Just as Jesus pronounced forgiveness over the sinful woman, he stands ready to pronounce forgiveness over you. No, how, no matter how seemingly big or small our sin, we all stand in need of one who can right the wrong of our sin and reconcile us to creator God. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save us from condemnation for our sin. He came to pay the debt that we could never pay. And to give us righteousness that we can never earn or achieve. So Jesus told the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, when Jesus saves us, he changes us. Now, it wasn't her display of love that brought salvation to her. It was her faith, her faith in Christ. And then this faith was demonstrated by the love that she showed. By her actions, she made much of Jesus. No matter the cost, she was willing to go into the place where she would be shamed and lower herself and make much of Jesus. You see, when we have faith in Jesus, we want to make much of him. The contrast is as extreme as the self-righteous Pharisee and the sinful unnamed woman and the way that they treated Jesus. So here's the question for us. Which one describes me this morning? Which one describes us? Do we make much of Jesus or do we make little of Jesus? Think about Galatians chapter 2 verse 28. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Praise God for this incredible salvation that he has given us. Let me ask you this morning, have you come to terms with the depth of sinfulness in your own heart? Have you surrendered and placed your faith in Christ? Do you have peace with God? As Jesus says to the sinful woman, go in peace. Would you describe your relationship with Jesus as cordial or are you making
in your life. I would challenge you to really consider this morning your relationship to Jesus and whether or not you're making much of him. This morning, if you've recognized that you have never truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that I would love to speak with you about surrendering your life to Christ or talk to you about the hope of the gospel. You can call me on my cell phone, Frost Barnes, or you can call the church office. You can email me. You can find the number there and the email there on the website. And so for now, I want to close us in prayer and offer a challenge to the church that we would really dwell upon what it means for us in our lives to make much of Jesus. Then let me also challenge you during this time as part of your worship to consider, if you haven't already, consider um, giving your tithe and using this time to reflect upon what Christ is doing in your life and continue to worship Jesus as we do when we gather together through the giving of your tithe and offering. You can do that online or certainly write your check out and mail that into the church office. If you're visiting with us, don't hear this as me begging for money. Uh, This is part of of our uh, normal worship as a congregation. And so let us take time now. I'm going to close us in prayer. Shane's going to come and lead us in music. Uh, And then (coughs) in a moment after the music finishes, Melvin will come and Melvin will share a report from our management team uh, in lieu of our uh, members meeting, which is supposed to be tonight. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you show us. Thank you, Jesus, for our salvation. Lord Jesus, we want to make much of you. That is our heart's desire. So help us, Father, strengthen us to resist temptation, to flee temptation, to draw near to you and you draw near to us, to guide us, uh, strengthen us, Lord, to be guided by your Holy Spirit, to trust you and to walk with you to trust you in the hard things, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's work in our midst. And God, strengthen us to live for you boldly, to be as bold as this woman who would march into the Pharisee's house and anoint Jesus' feet. Strengthen us to have that kind of boldness and that kind of love. It's in Christ's name we pray.